Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, July 20th, 2022, the 546th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. If you are listening to this podcast on the day of its release, it's because you are a paid subscriber on the Substack. I'm your moderator.substack.com. And if you are, I would like to extend my sincere thanks and gratitude for your support. If you're not, eh, you're getting the show a couple days behind. It's not a bad deal for free. But if you want to support the show, the best way to do it is to become a paid subscriber on Substack. You can do it for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. It's under a quarter per episode. And you'll get all the writing right when I post it. So I was thinking last night about narrative collapse, as I do pretty much every day, most of the time. And I was thinking about the things we're currently being told by the media, which are by and large, utterly insane. Almost everything the media tries to convince the public of at this point is utterly insane, totally detached from reality to the point where almost no one could believe it. And 
I'm thinking about why this is and obviously the impact it has, which is a complete and total distrust of the media. And at some point following that for every individual or for groups of people, the awakening, that is when it starts. They lose trust in the people and the institutions and the sources that have guided their worldview and their understanding of events throughout their lives. And that's just an unfortunate consequence of the society we are currently in. We have been systematically brainwashed and deceived by the media, by the government, by corporations, etc. When the messages people receive don't make any sense, don't seem to reflect the reality as they know it, as they're perceiving it in their everyday lives, as it's affecting them, they first begin to question what they're being told. How can this be right? How can this make sense? I know these people are the authoritative source. I know that they're the paper of record, for instance, but I just can't believe them. Everything they're saying, it doesn't seem to attach to reality in any way. And so they eventually go from doubting the claims and being sure that the claims can't be accurate to doubting the sources that continue to communicate constantly inaccurate and misleading claims. And that's the point at which awakening begins. Because most of these people were happy to accept the simple stories and the parts of the ideology as they were communicated. They are, you know, prone to agree with the general public understanding. People like to have beliefs that they express that line up with the beliefs the people around them are expressing. They want to feel like they have a coherent view of the world that's shared by other people. That's how they know that they're not insane. And you can build coalitions around simple truths. And that's what they've always done. For example, Republicans are racist. Democrats are the party that's fighting racism. That is what society has accepted as a simple truth for the better part of the last 40 years. And the reason people believe this is because it's hammered into their heads over and over and over again. And the fact that the South is considered the red area in America now, the Republican area. And we all know that the South was on the side of slavery in the Civil War. That means that Republicans must be representing those same people. And so the South is red because the South is racist. And because the South is racist and votes for Republicans, that means Republicans are racist, too. And that is very, very simple. They connect the constant media narrative with the color red and the party Republican. And then there you have it. Republicans are racist. So you go on down the line listening to that claim and you meet Republicans and they don't seem very racist. But if you're in that sort of child brains, communist mindset, you might say to yourself, oh, this is just one of the good ones. It's the other Republicans for sure that are racist and they must be racist because the South is all red. But those claims can't last forever because they're not true. In fact, they're ridiculous. The idea that 50 percent of the country is racist is utterly absurd, but they accept it because it has its advantages. It helps the Democrats win elections, win in quotes. And it makes people feel self-righteous when they support Democrats. What good thing are you doing for minority communities? Well, <laughs> let me tell you, I vote Democrat. Now, sometimes 
people begin learning about history and they find out things like the Democrat Communist Party was the party of slavery and it was the party of the Confederacy and it was the party of the KKK and it was the party of Jim Crow. And even though they've taken credit for the civil rights era, it was Democrats that filibustered the Civil Rights Act and it's Democrats running the cities where we see urban decay in minority communities and the continuous exploitation of those communities while their lives are continually degraded and Democrats remain in power, which is a good indication that Democrats are stealing their votes or at the very minimum bribing them for their votes with the proliferation and expansion of the welfare state. And if you learn that history and you understand that those actually are the historical facts about the two parties, the Democrats are, in fact, the historically racist party. And it's not an accident. It's part of the ideology. Collectivist ideologies gain power by creating division among classes and then exploiting that division by claiming their own allegiance with the victimized party. This is not new. This is what communists have been doing forever. And we have seen the Democrat Communist Party do that throughout our lifetimes. We can see them doing it today. And so when the narrative begins to lose its hold on people, when people begin to think, wait a second, are the Republicans really a racist party? I mean, everything is being called racist these days. But at the same time, we can see all the Democrats saying absolutely terrible things about white people. Isn't white a race? Why can't you be racist against white people again? Oh, because they've always had power, so it's impossible to be racist towards them. Well, people don't believe that because it's ridiculous. The power dynamic is just Marxism. That's just postmodern nonsense. That's critical race theory. The key to racism is whether or not you're judging people and then hating people based on their race. And that definition doesn't change when the hate is directed toward white people and people recognize that and they say to themselves, hey, well, you know, I understand that the Democrats are the party that's fixing racism, but how are they also the party that's promoting so much obvious, blatant hatred toward a racial group, white people? And then if they're very savvy, they might ask the question, why are they using affirmative action to harm Asians trying to get into college? That's very strange for the party that's helping racism. But of course, we're told that Asians actually do really well in America. Therefore, they have power. Therefore, you know, it's not racist when we keep them out of college. And of course, that makes no sense. And then if you're really savvy, you might understand things like, oh, black immigrants also perform better than the average American when they come here. So is racism not affecting them because they're immigrants? And if that's the case, what does that mean for the whole thing at the southern border? Is is that 
still about race? Do Republicans hate Mexicans, too? Because the immigration thing, well, that's starting to feel weird, too. Why do we need to allow two million illegal immigrants into the country and then give them jobs and give them health care and give them places to live and give them food? We don't even do that for American citizens. And all of these realizations chip away at the underlying claim, the underlying claim that Republicans are racist and Democrats are the party solving racism. And so as the narrative falls away, the explanations for why the narrative still remains true, the underlying claim that Republicans are racist still remains true. Well, they got to keep layering onto that and it gets more and more complicated. And the more complicated it gets, the harder it is for a broad coalition of people to believe it. So you end up just chipping away at your own coalition and you begin turning voters off. Because people can only be lied to for so long before they start wondering if maybe they've been lied to the whole time. And if they've been lied to the whole time, well, maybe someone is actually trying to trick them. You can hold a coalition together with a simple falsehood that is widely believed. It's very, very difficult to hold a large coalition together when the simple falsehood is no longer widely believed Yet you continue to try to prop it up with more and more complicated and specific falsehoods. In one of the Democrat abortion hearings this week, one of the expert witnesses said this. Immigrant children are caged apart from their families. Trans children are turned into political fodder. Young students are murdered in their schools and black and brown parents live in anxiety about the day their children encounter the police. These issues are not separate from abortion. They are the realities we consider when weighing whether we want to bring another life into this country. Now, that woman's name is Renee Bracey Sherman. And of course, she has a website. Her about section, her descriptor of herself says Renee Bracey Sherman has been hailed as the Beyonce of abortion storytelling. So she's an expert on telling stories about abortion that communists, I guess, believe are very effective. She elicits the proper emotion. She describes scenarios that tug at your heartstrings and make you know that abortion is the most important thing ever for women and that they need to have it available all the time, everywhere, up to the moment of birth and maybe even after. But what did she just do there? She combined a whole bunch of narratives to come back around and imply that it's racist to not support the pro-life position that allows abortion at any point up till birth and again, possibly after. Immigrant children are locked in cages away from their parents. So kids in cages is part of the abortion issue. Trans children, something that doesn't actually exist, are used as political fodder. And she's pretending that they're used as political fodder by the right. Trans children, in quotes, are used as political fodder by the left and nothing in the world could be more obvious. They are putting young students are murdered in their schools. 
therefore we need abortion. And black and brown parents are stressed out about when their kid might eventually cross paths with the police. The implication being that the police are going to murder their children because the police are racist. Now, all of those terrible problems that are all caused by Republicans or at least pro-lifers and can only be solved with communism and they haven't been solved yet. We need more communism. These failures in our society make it so that black and brown parents, parents of any variety, really are scared to have children. And because they're scared to have children, that means we need abortion everywhere all the time. And if you don't support it, you're racist. So we've gone from Republicans are racist because the South was the Confederacy and now the South is red and Republicans are red. Therefore, Republicans are the party of the Confederacy and Republicans are not only racist now, but have historically been racist forever. And if you don't understand that, you have to remember the Democrats signed the Civil Rights Act into law. Yes, after filibustering it. But you got to remember, Lyndon B. Johnson, hero that he was, is the Democrat president who took office after John F. Kennedy was assassinated and he signed the Civil Rights Act. Now, while he signed it, he said this will have those N words voting Democrat for the next 200 years. But you got to understand in his heart, he was actually so not racist that when he says it, it's not a thing. But of course, people are seeing through that. So what used to be the original claim, Republicans are racist, that was a simple falsehood and widely accepted, has now been compounded with extraordinarily complicated falsehoods, none of which are widely accepted. Her claim there was utterly ridiculous. She included at least five or six or seven narratives, all based on total falsehoods, and said that the accumulation of those made it so that Republicans are racist for opposing abortion, and it's cruel. But the kids in cages narrative is a lie. The illegal immigration problem and its consequences are a direct result of the Democrat Communist Party and its uniparty enablers with R's next to their name. That's their system. That's their doing. They run it in other parts of the world. You can see it being run in other parts of the world. You can see the people aligned with the same political agenda doing it. So to pretend that that's some kind of Republican or MAGA or Trump problem is utterly insane. Kids in cages, totally based on falsehoods, yet used as a building block for the new explanation of why Republicans are racist due to being pro-life. Trans kids used as fodder. Well, trans kids aren't a real thing. Their parents are making them trans. They're deciding that they're trans. They're taking them to just Nazi doctors all across the country. And those Nazi doctors are chemically castrating them and doing surgeries on them so that they become some genderless child who will eventually get older and begin to understand these things in a way that their mind can comprehend. And then they'll see their parents as having committed child abuse. 
but we're going to pretend that all of that is good. Trans kids really exist and they're being used as political fodder by Republicans because Republicans don't say the right things about trans kids. Therefore, they're racist for being pro-life, right? Kids get shot in schools. That's a gun problem because Republicans support guns. Then Republicans support school shootings. And if Republicans support school shootings, it's no wonder that black and brown parents are afraid to have children because they know that the racists support school shootings. And if they don't want abortion to be free and legal up to birth and maybe even after, well, then they must be racist based on all of these different completely and totally false theories. Well, that's extremely complicated. And it's even more complicated because none of it's true. But if it was all true, people could think their way through it and reach their own conclusions. And if all that stuff was true, then you would assume by and large people being generally good and wanting to do good and not wanting to hurt other people. Most of the people would probably form consensus around a reasonable, defensible conclusion. And if all those things were true, if everything that lady just said was true and had the ability to convince people of its truth, then people would reach the conclusion she wants them to reach. Unfortunately, everything she just said is complete and total nonsense. That was a series of non sequiturs that mean nothing about the actual abortion debate. So that doesn't have the power to convince anybody. And you can hear the tone in her voice. She's talking like a petulant child. She's mad that people don't automatically see how pure and righteous her view is. She finds it insulting that she's even being asked these questions. And that's natural because the things she's saying are insane. The sort of insane that could only be believed by people who are completely detached from reality. And that's exactly what she is. But she nonetheless certainly believes all these things, which means that to continue to support her beliefs and the underlying claims, she has to keep coming up with more complicated and convoluted explanations for why all that stuff is still right. And at some point, as this process continues, she'll be left with nothing more than trust me, I'm an expert. Can't you see my credentials? Can't you see that I sold this book? Can't you see that I have a speaking fee at all of these different women's conferences? I'm an expert. You have to believe me. And of course, that's insane too. So what happens? They detach further from reality. Their explanations get more and more ridiculous. And eventually they just get really, really angry. And that's where she is. But they're doing this across the entire range of issues. This process is happening in regard to every issue Americans face, whether it's immigration or inflation or the very violent invasion in Ukraine or censorship or the COVID response. The simple falsehoods, the underlying claims that support the communist position on all of those issues, that's falling apart. Fewer people are believing it every day. So the explanations become more ridiculous. The people giving the explanations begin to sound 
completely insane, completely detached from reality because they are or they're just, you know, paid TV shills who are lying for profit. And eventually people just tune it out. And it turns out that like the race narrative, people are tuning out another of the Democrats most important simple falsehoods. That's on climate change, as we were discussing yesterday. This is from Monday in the New York Times. As the planet cooks, climate stalls as a political issue. Summers in Maricopa County, Arizona, have become at times unbearable, Kyle Hawkinson said on Friday. Oh, wow. What a way to start. (laughs) Summers in Arizona are unbearable, somebody said. Smoke and haze hung heavily over Phoenix and residents were bracing for fire season when the heat and air pollution would only grow worse. Climate change, he said, is at least partly to blame. But when Mr. Hawkinson, a 24-year-old cashier, voted for Joseph R. Biden Jr. in 2020, climate wasn't really a factor in his choice, he said. So the New York Times starts off quoting a 24-year-old cashier and no judgment on his current job. I'm sure Mr. Hawkinson has the potential to do great things in his future, but he's 24 years old and working as a cashier and the New York Times is quoting him for his position on climate change. And he's a Biden voter, so he's not very bright. As for voting in November, when the Arizona governor's mansion and one of the state Senate seats are on the line, that's going to be a big maybe, he said, adding, climate change is always going to be a problem. That's just a given. Honestly, there's only so much our leaders of the country can do. Well, actually, he's right about that, but not exactly right. The truth is there's basically nothing they can do. And the best thing they could do would be to shut the hell up. News on Thursday that even a stripped down compromise to address a warming planet appeared to be dead was greeted in Washington by brutal condemnations from environmentalists and Democrats, some accusing Senator Joe Manchin three Democrat of West Virginia of dooming human life on Earth. <laughs> We're doomed. Representative Pramila Jayapal, Democrat of Washington, called Mr. Manchin's decision, quote, nothing short of catastrophic. So we have a 24 year old cashier telling us that climate change is at least partly to blame. We have Democrats and climate activists telling us that Joe Manchin is dooming life on Earth. And we have Pramila Jayapal of the squad, just some idiot congresswoman, saying that Manchin's decision is nothing short of catastrophic. Again, I always like to consider a couple possible interpretations of what someone says. It could be that Pramila Jayapal is just using extremely dramatic language to try to convince anyone listening that the climate change narrative as they tell it is 100% true and everything really is an existential emergency. But we could take it another way 
and take her at her word, maybe she really does believe that Manchin's decision is catastrophic. Well, she certainly doesn't believe that as far as the environment goes. There's no way she actually buys everything she's selling. But Manchin's decision certainly could be catastrophic as far as implementing the agenda goes and as far as maintaining Democrat power for people like Pramila Jayapal goes, that could definitely be catastrophic. But an electorate already struggling with inflation, exhausted by COVID and adjusting to tectonic changes like the end to constitutionally protected abortions may give the latest Democrat defeat a resigned shrug. The truth is, all of those issues are extremely low priorities for voters as well, besides inflation, which the Democrats caused. And that may be why climate change remains an issue with little political power, either for those pressing for dramatic action or for those standing in the way. People are exhausted by the pandemic. They're terribly disillusioned by the government, said Anusha Narayanan climate campaign director for Greenpeace USA, the environmental group known for its guerrilla tactics, but now struggling to mobilize supporters. Oh, that's strange. Greenpeace? Nobody cares about Greenpeace anymore? Maybe they should have stuck with saving the whales. She added, people see climate as a tomorrow problem. We have to make them see it's not a tomorrow problem. And it's funny that they think the way to fix that problem is by repeating the narrative over and over, complicating it further, believing it will be more convincing, and then getting utterly insane and angry when no one buys it. You'd think they might realize that maybe 50 years of constantly crying wolf has clued people into the fact that the wolf isn't real. And when climate change's biggest proponents are buying mansions on coastlines and flying around the world on private jets, people with fully formed adult-sized brains are going to begin questioning the honesty of the people trying to sell them on a communist takeover of the world in order to save the earth from the sun. They don't look at it as a tomorrow problem because the people telling them it's a tomorrow problem act like it's not a problem at all. The evidence that a climate crisis is well underway appears to be everywhere. Oh, it appears to be everywhere. The evidence is that it's well underway. Well, it's not the evidence that you told us showed that it was well underway 40 years ago or 30 years ago or 20 years ago or 10 years ago. All of those predictions were wrong. All of the indications that the climate crisis was well underway back then have proven to be wrong. The Great Salt Lake in Utah is drying up. Oh, no. Severe weather regularly imperiling the electric grid in Texas. It's not the severe weather that did that. It's the electric grid that did that. It's the shift to wind and solar that did that and the regulations that did that, that say all the electricity produced, a percentage of it must come from renewables. 
It's the rigidity of those regulations and the inability for the grid to switch to sources that actually work in times of need that are creating the crisis. It's got absolutely nothing to do with climate change. It has to do with policy and it's policy that these people support. Wildfires scorching the drought plagued West. Again, not a climate change problem, a forest management problem and potentially an arson problem and also an electrical grid and regulation problem. Climate refugees seeking higher land in Louisiana. (laughs) Climate refugees are headed for the hills in Louisiana and tidal floods swamping the streets of Miami. That's strange. Are wealthy technocrats moving away from Miami or to Miami? Oh, it's to Miami. Then I guess it must not be that big a concern. But here's the kicker buried halfway down the article. Still just 1% of voters in a recent New York Times Siena College poll named climate change as the most important issue facing the country, far behind worries about inflation and the economy. Even among voters under 30, the group thought to be most energized by the issue, that figure was 3%. Now let's consider what that number means. 1% of people think climate change is the biggest priority. Guess which 1% that is. That should be a pretty good indication that the rest of the country does not buy what they're selling. The simple falsehood that climate change is an existential threat is no longer convincing people. It is no longer something around which they can form coalitions because the story is becoming flimsy. The underlying claim has been under attack. It is unsupportable. Therefore, the more complicated explanations that they layer on, those don't work either. And eventually people tune it out because climate change isn't just supposed to be the sort of belief you understand to be true. It's the sort of belief that you are supposed to be willing to change your entire life in order to fix. It's an existential crisis. The sun is attacking the earth. The only way to save the earth from the sun is to change everyone's lives forever. And because the climate doesn't just confine itself to our country, that means the entire world needs to be united under one rule in order to fix the problem. We need to be able to monitor how each and every citizen is contributing to climate change and encourage better behavior. And if they don't behave better, well, then we're going to have to use force. So 99% of America doesn't seem like they see climate change as this dire existential world destroying threat. They're not buying that the world is going to end in eight short years if we don't do something now. The public simply doesn't want to do something now. They especially don't want to implement the Green New Deal. The people in charge of implementing it have already wrecked the country in 18 short months of the illegitimate government being in place. This is Yahoo News yesterday. What would it mean for Biden to declare a national climate emergency? In the wake of Senator Joe Manchin's announcement that he won't vote for a bill addressing climate change unless inflation slows next month, 
Climate leaders are calling for President Biden to declare climate change a national emergency, and it appears that the White House is seriously considering the move. So it's interesting to see that Joe Manchin has left himself an out. That is a totally subjective standard by which he is potentially agreeing to support this bill. Well, let's see in a month if inflation slows down some amount and then maybe I'll go ahead and help you pass your little bill. And of course, Democrats are freaking out about this because they freak out about everything. But since I don't trust Joe Manchin at all, I have to wonder whether or not he is facilitating and necessitating a Biden executive order, a declaration of a national climate emergency so that the illegitimate administration can extract more money and power from the people. A formal declaration would open up new possibilities for unilateral action by the executive branch to combat climate change, including halting U.S. exports of crude oil and halting offshore drilling. And if that sounds like another blatant attack on energy markets, then you have been paying attention. Biden could even redirect military funding to the construction of renewable energy projects, much as former President Donald Trump diverted more than $18 billion in Pentagon funding to build a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border and impose trade penalties on countries that permit deforestation, such as the destruction of the Amazon rainforest in Brazil. And a couple of months ago, maybe a month ago, President Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil did an interview with Tucker Carlson, where he explained very clearly that the deforestation of the Amazon narrative was complete and total bullshit. But Americans believe it, particularly Americans who believe that Joe Biden got 81 million real legal American votes. So it's useful for them to continue saying it. They have firmly implanted that simple falsehood in people's minds and they can use it anytime they need it because people accept it as true, even though it's not. And so with Joe Biden's national climate emergency, he could further harm energy markets, raising the prices of energy and then redirect military funding and weaken the military, as he's already been doing for something that is not a national security issue. The wall along the border with Mexico is a national security issue. Building more renewable energy projects that not only don't work and don't have the capacity to work and also contaminate the environment is not in any way fortifying our national security. They are really just accumulating more power and more illegitimate authority to be able to implement the plans they already wanted to implement because they can't pass them through Congress because the people don't want them. And even as corrupt and illegitimate as the Congress is, they're still not able to get it done because the citizens would have even more incentive to remove all of those people from office. But such a creative use of the relevant federal law would also undoubtedly trigger lawsuits from fossil fuel companies and Republicans. And you can imagine the attorneys general of many states around the country. I bet Ken Paxton already has one ready to go as soon as Joe Biden declares this ridiculous national emergency. 
On Monday evening, Senators Jeff Merkley from Oregon and Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island held a press conference to ask Biden to explore a range of actions to reduce climate pollution. Many of these, such as using the Defense Production Act to build up domestic clean energy manufacturing capacity, are extensions and expansions of moves Biden has already begun to make. There's probably nothing more important for our nation and for our world than for the United States to drive a bold, energetic transition in its energy economy from fossil fuels to renewable energy, Merkley said. Obviously not true. Obviously. What would make a huge positive impact on our world almost immediately? And censorship. That would be a great place to start. Amid record-breaking heat waves in the Western U.S. and in Europe, Merkley argued that climate change is no longer a future threat, but an already unfolding disaster. Again and again and again. Always the same. My state is in crisis, he said. We have massive droughts that are destroying our farmers. It's affecting our forests. We have the red zone where the pine beetles are killing the pine trees. We have the forest fires and we have a huge impact on our fishing, both in our streams and offshore. And the only way to fix that is by turning to energy sources that are fully under their control and don't work and make the environment worse. But we're not going to force China to abide by the same standards or India. Those economies are expanding rapidly and becoming more industrialized, but you know, they're not the problem. We can't, we can't slow them down. They're developing nations. So unfortunately, the citizens of the United States are going to have to bear the full brunt of this. And it's not just a week in the United States, although that's a bonus. The most dramatic option that Merkley wants Biden to take is to declare a national emergency on climate. Later that evening, the Washington Post reported that the White House is indeed considering doing so. The president made clear that if the Senate doesn't act to tackle the climate crisis and strengthen our domestic clean energy industry, he will. A White House official said in a statement, we are considering all options and no decision has been made. Speculation that the president would soon declare a climate emergency increased when it was announced that he will visit the Brayton Point power plant in Somerset, Massachusetts on Wednesday to give a speech about climate change. Brayton Point is currently shuttered while it transitions from burning coal to generating wind power. So forever. Rhetorically, Biden has previously called climate change an emergency, but he has stopped short of making an official declaration under the National Emergencies Act. U.S. presidents have declared 60 national emergencies since 1976, according to the think tank Demos. Historically, those have typically been for acute crises, such as specific natural disasters, rather than a long term predicament like climate change. Oh, yeah, that's right. Since climate change is an unfixable problem, if they declare a climate emergency, then they get to seize these powers and this funding for themselves forever because the emergency will never end, much like they just extended the COVID emergency. Is COVID an actual emergency? No. But does the government continue to retain that power because there are enough idiots in this country who still think COVID is a very deadly pandemic? Yes. In an era of increased partisan polarization and congressional gridlock, however, pushing the boundaries of executive action is becoming more common. 
Trump, for instance, declared illegal migration across the southern border a national emergency so he could use funds that Congress appropriated for the military to build a border wall, a move the Supreme Court upheld in 2019. In theory, such a precedent would bode well for a climate emergency declaration, but one cannot assume too much consistency from a court that has also become more partisan and seen fit to limit the ability of the Environmental Protection Agency to enforce the Clean Air Act. Actually, that's not really what they did. They declared that these agencies don't have the authority to exert the control they've been exerting. It's not an issue of consistency. And it's not an issue about the environment. The Associated Press reported Wednesday, Biden will, quote, stop short of issuing an emergency declaration that would unlock federal resources to deal with the issue, according to a person familiar with the president's plans. Sources acquainted with the White House's thinking also told Yahoo News that though an emergency climate declaration is under serious consideration, it will not be coming this week. Instead, the president will reportedly announce some new executive orders on climate change during his Massachusetts speech. Don't be disappointed if you don't see a climate emergency tomorrow, one source told Reuters. And the article goes on, but I do want to just skip down to the end. While a climate declaration is important in terms of media attention and galvanizing the climate movement, it does not have significant impacts on carbon pollution, said one climate expert who spoke on the condition of anonymity to avoid upsetting colleagues. It is a symbolic act more than a substantive one. So we're being told that we have an existential crisis creating an emergency situation. And to react to that emergency situation, the president needs to assume national emergency powers, even though nothing he would do would actually help. It's just for show, according to this climate expert who's maintaining anonymity because he fears for reprisal from his colleagues, other climate experts, the people communicating the science. One scientist is worried about being punished by other scientists because he's not saying the thing that helps their agenda. But forget about scientists. We need to hear from White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre so that we can know what the emergency situation is really about. What specifically you would use it for and do? So I, one thing that I just wanted to make clear, because some folks were asking um, about, uh, about the abortion piece, the emergency abortion piece. So just wanted to just lay out. Um, so look, we haven't ruled out a public health emergency, as I just laid out, uh, and so we're just we're just still moving forward with um, with the options that we potentially have uh, in front of us. Everything is on the table, but to declaring a public health emergency is very different from de declaring a climate emergency. Each unlocks a different set uh, of authorities and a different pot of funding, uh, and so that's one way to to think about that. Um, so. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up because we've heard this, and so comparing one against the other as a reflection of priority would not be uh, would not be accurate. Uh, but again, it's on the table. We haven't made we haven't 
we don't have anything to announce at this time uh, and uh, you know the president will speak more on what it is how he wants to move on those differences is it a, a bigger pot of money it unlocks I know that was one of the concerns the administration had about the public health emergency and are there any other specifics you can share about how you could use a climate declaration so I don't have any specifics or anything to move further uh, on what I just stated but you're right when uh, Jen Klein was here just a, almost two weeks ago she talked about how in the pot of money for the uh, for the abortion pieces there was just tens of thousands of dollars there so we there was some feeling that uh, we, we didn't know exactly how that would work but she did state that it would be still on the table and that we were still thinking through it uh, but uh, as far as the what's on the in the climate the climate side I just don't now she's either one of the dumbest people on the planet or this whole thing is a total put on and at this point I'm like okay man I know people say that, but there is almost no way these people can be this dumb. So the administration already has their COVID national emergency. They're thinking about declaring a public health emergency for abortion. And now they also want to declare a national climate emergency. And the reason they want to declare these emergencies is because, as you heard her say, it unlocks special powers and special funding. And you also just heard her admit that they hadn't gone forward with the public health emergency on abortion because it only unlocked tens of thousands of dollars. And that wasn't really going to get the job done. So why even bother? Would the climate emergency unlock more money? Well, apparently that's what they're checking into. But regardless, they're not going to have a decision on any of it until next week, which is a strange timeline when you're considering an existential threat. And if all of this sounds ridiculous, then you might be one of the 99% of people who don't really believe them on climate anymore. And you're probably part of the overwhelming majority of Americans who don't believe them on anything anymore. Boom segue. Didn't even notice, did you? Last week, I talked about polling that showed the public's trust in media to have fallen to all new lows. Now, the media doesn't want to accept that reality. They don't want to believe that they are doing such a terrible job that the public has tuned them out completely. So they're trying to save themselves. And this is an incredible piece from a man named Jack Schaefer writing for Politico. The headline is, you trust the media more than you say you do. If you follow the trend line of plummeting trust in newspapers, as just updated by Gallup, you could make an argument that by the year 2030 or so, 0% of respondents will say they have any confidence in newspapers and TV news. It sounds ridiculous, but that's the direction the data is headed. In 1979, 51% of those polled said they had a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in newspaper journalism. But in Gallup's latest poll this week, the number dropped to 16%, marking a steep four and a half decade decline. Confidence in TV news has fared even worse, dropping from 46% in 1991 to 11% today. Will the last poll respondent to lose confidence in newspapers and TV news please cancel his subscription and turn off his TV? I think that's like, if you're the last one, you turn off the lights when you leave kind of reference. This writer thinks he's much better than he is, apparently. 
this downer news about the news and its hellbound trajectory surely measures something but what? Other surveys by the Pew Research Center and the Reuters Institute bring similar findings. Could it be that newspapers are demonstrably worse than they were decades ago? No. Would anybody who was reading newspapers in 1979 say that? No. Any honest assessment would find today's newspapers more timely and accurate, fairer, and often better written than the newspapers of 1979. So what gives? I mean, let's just give him that one for now. Newspapers aren't alone in suffering a confidence decline. As Gallup reported earlier this month, 11 of 16 important American institutions have witnessed significant declines in confidence, including the criminal justice system, the presidency, the Supreme Court, public schools, and even the military. Congress rated only 4% confidence in the Gallup poll, beating out the news media for last place. Citing a near universal decline in institutional confidence isn't an attempt to offer an excuse for newspapers, except that that's exactly how he's using it. But it illustrates the pervasiveness of public colic over American life and society and suggests the institutions might not have changed as much as the perceptions of them have. The best explanation for the uniform drops might be that we're living in an age of heightened criticism and scrutiny that leaves no faults or blemishes unnoticed compared to earlier eras. Politicians, activists, and the press itself are all more critical of institutions than they were in the 70s. If the public has lost confidence in so many institutions, how did they come to that realization? It's safe to say that they learned much of what they know about institutional failings from what they read in newspapers or saw on TV news. In this environment, even the common man becomes a hanging judge, especially when the press goes on trial. So you are supposed to believe that people by and large still trust the media as much as they used to because they are forming their beliefs and their lack of trust around other institutions based on what they read in the media. And to some extent, that's true, but not the way Jack Schaefer imagines it to be true. Not at all. People are losing faith in the institutions because the institutions are corrupt and obviously so because the institutions do not have the citizens interests at heart, even though they say they do. And because it's clear that they don't, the purposes of these institutions themselves are being undermined. The institutions clearly are not pursuing the goals they were created to pursue. All of them are obviously serving power and serving a certain agenda. And that agenda works in opposition to the American people. People can see that on their own. They lose trust in those institutions because of it. The media right now and for a long time has existed to support those institutions in their corruption and the agenda that they are pursuing. The media acts as the hype man for all of these failing institutions. And people can see evidence of that every day in nearly every headline they read on every cable show they watch. They're not losing faith in the institutions because the media is exposing the flaws in those institutions. They're losing faith in all of it simultaneously because the institutions are are infiltrated. The institutions are pursuing an agenda that harms the American people. 
and the media exists to support them. Of course, they're going to lose trust in all of it. The media is the most obviously trustworthy because they continue to propagate falsehoods across the board that people can see and experience in their own lives as false. Another possible reason the press might have lost confidence Reporting has not just become more critical in the past 40 years, but it's also started covering topics it left largely untouched in earlier times. As Matthew Pressman wrote in his 2018 book, On Press, The Liberal Values That Shaped the News, as recently as the early 1960s, newspapers largely ignored matters of race, sex, class, and inequity, topics that can make some readers squirm. There weren't many stories about gender or trans issues in 1979. Other sacred cows, like organized religion, get much more scrutiny today than they did yesterday. Is the press at least partly responsible for the decline in confidence in organized religion from 68% in 1975 to 31 this year? Seems likely. If so, the disdain for the press might be linked to blame the messenger mindset. So once again, the press is just giving you the cold, hard truth, and you're getting upset because you don't like the truth. It's also easy to surmise that some of the negativity toward the press originates in how many members of the political class talk about it. Politicians have long blamed the press for their shortcomings and failures, but that increased in the mid-1960s as George Wallace showered the press with his bile. So you get that? Politicians are who's really harming the press and especially racist politicians. So actually going after the press is racist. President Richard Nixon and his vice president Spiro Agnew imitated Wallace to good political effect. Other Pauls have followed, but none so aggressively as President Donald Trump, who placed press bashing at the center of his oratorical agenda, declaring that the fake news media is the true enemy of the people. Even President Joe Biden is known to slam the press. Last month on Jimmy Kimmel Live, he blamed some of his troubles on a sensationalist press and click chasing. In our polarized age, particularly one where Internet myths proliferate and people struggle to distinguish news from opinion, it's no surprise so many are eager to discount the media. And it's funny that they always paint Trump as a clownish liar that no one actually pays attention to, but also blame him for Americans distrust in the media. That is literally the same logical move that this writer is depending on for his theory of the case in this article. Remember, people lost their faith in the institutions based on the media exposing the flaws in the institutions. But Trump exposing the flaws in the media, well, that had no effect because nobody believes Trump, but it's also his fault. Got it both ways there, don't you, Jack? Yet does the public really have such a low opinion of newspapers? Gallup's wording of its question is pretty vague. It didn't ask respondents to rate the specific newspapers they read, but to express their levels of confidence in the newspaper as an institution. They might have gotten a more positive answer if they asked people how they felt about the daily newspaper they actually read. When the Pew Research Center asked this question in 2005, they found that 80% of Americans give favorable ratings to their daily. Local TV news, cable news, and network TV news are rated only slightly worse. 
Granted, that's data from a 17-year-old survey, but it shows that asking a slightly different question about the press can produce a startlingly different answer. But again, that doesn't prove a solid case for this writer. That only proves that media, mainstream media, which exists to promote the central narrative and market to specific groups, is still able to please those specific groups with its highly targeted and marketed version of the news. Hating newspapers but loving one's own daily has a congressional parallel familiar to many in Washington. In 1978, political scientist Richard Fenno formulated Fenno's paradox, which states that people generally disapprove of Congress but support their own congressmen. That's why members of Congress often run against Congress. If Fenno's paradox applies to newspapers, perhaps the crisis in confidence Gallup has measured isn't all of what it's cracked up to be. So basically, the conclusion here, the entire thesis of this article is that that poll is wrong because I can think up and imagine ways that everyone really does trust the media. Even media figures, I played Katie Turr yesterday, are wondering what they have done wrong, why the public distrusts them so much. The mainstream media has existed in the last six or seven years to defame Donald Trump, to discredit his supporters with nothing but downright bigotry, to promote blatantly false narratives like the Russia collusion hoax, the Mueller investigation, both completely ridiculous impeachments, the entire COVID narrative, the election in 2020, the big lie, the January 6th, very violent insurrection, Joe Biden's immigration policy, Joe Biden's economic policies, the war in Ukraine. It's actually no wonder whatsoever why the public distrusts the media. This is just a media cheerleader hoping to get retweets all day long from his media colleagues who still believe that they are doing the right thing no matter what. But here's another example of why no one trusts the mainstream media. This is Perry Bacon writing in the Washington Post, how media coverage drove Biden's political plunge. The mainstream media has played a huge underappreciated role in President Biden's declining support over the past year. Its flawed coverage model of politics and government is bad for more than just Biden. It results in a distorted national discourse that weakens our democracy. The media needs to find a different way to cover Washington. One of the sharpest dips in Biden's approval rating, which has dropped from 55% in January 2021 to less than 39% today, and it's truthfully much lower than that, happened last August when it declined almost five points in a single month. There wasn't a huge surge in gas prices, nor some big legislative failure. What caused Biden's dip was the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, or rather the media's 24-7 highly negative coverage of it. So you see, the underlying event wasn't that bad. The media just went overboard in how negative they were to that magnificent disaster on display for the entire world to see. To be clear, Biden deserved criticism. 
The early stages of the U.S. exit were tumultuous, with desperate Afghans clinging to U.S. military planes and massing outside the Kabul airport. The Taliban took control far more quickly than the administration anticipated. But for much of August, the home pages of major newspapers and cable news programs were dominated by Afghanistan coverage, as if the chaotic withdrawal was the only thing happening in the world. <laughs> like, right? I can't believe so many people are even focused on that. It's like all the way across the world. Journalists and outlets tore into the president with Axios calling the withdrawal Biden's stain. NBC News correspondent Richard Engel declaring that history will judge this moment as a very dark period for the United States. And CNN's Jake Tapper asking an administration official on his show, does President Biden not bear the blame for this disastrous exit from Afghanistan? How could he ask that question? That's so rude. Like, sure, we're telling everybody that Biden really is the legitimate commander in chief of the United States military. But he's not to be blamed for the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. That's Donald Trump's fault. Biden's poll numbers plunged, closely tracking the media hysteria. As the Post Dana Milbank wrote in December, data analysis showed a marked increase in negativity and media coverage of Biden that started last August. Shocking. After the withdrawal, the media lumped other events into its Biden is struggling narrative, infighting among Democrats over the party's agenda. Democrats' weak performances in the New Jersey and Virginia gubernatorial races, rising inflation, and the surge of the Delta and Omicron variants. Biden's role in these issues was often exaggerated. There are many causes of inflation besides Biden's policies. Presidents can't stop the emergence of coronavirus variants. This anti-Biden coverage pattern remains in place. Yeah, when people were complaining about inflation, they didn't even know back then that it was because of Putin's very unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, which is obviously the reason for it now. And sure, the invasion didn't start last August, but inflation wasn't Joe Biden's fault then either. There are many causes of inflation. Perry Bacon just told you that. What are you going to do? not listen to the Washington Post? Afghanistan was an important turning point in media coverage for two reasons. One, it provided journalists the big anti-Biden story that I think many of them were desperate to find, you know, to prove that they were still objective reporters after kissing his ass nonstop for the last two years. And it drove down popularity with the public, giving the media justification for even more coverage that cast the president as struggling. So the underlying event was irrelevant. Everybody knows that Joe Biden is extremely competent at guiding military operations and that everyone was just doing their best. Sure, there were mistakes. But did you see how many illegal immigrants we brought over from Afghanistan to the United States and also to Europe? It was a shocking amount. Everybody should be giving us credit for that. And by the way, I'm not making that up. That was their explanation for why everything in Afghanistan was going really well. But the media, they just didn't see it that way. They needed an anti-Biden story to get some of their credibility back after kissing his ass. So they used that one. They just made a big deal out of Afghanistan, even though it was no big deal. And that media coverage, well, that drove down Biden's popularity to the public. 
which explains the low poll ratings. It's the media's fault. Perry Bacon just proved it. Biden coverage shifted in this direction because of the media's longstanding biases toward both sidesism and strong criticism of those in power. Got that? So media realized it was picking on Republicans for too long, and they decided to pick on the Democrats just a little bit, taking that little tiny Afghanistan disaster and making it into a huge Afghanistan disaster. And you know, media always taking systems of power to task. Good old journalism always thinking they've got to speak truth to power, even though they never do it. When I say mainstream media, I'm referring to the news coverage in national newspapers, such as The Post and The New York Times, major broadcasters such as CNN, wire services like the Associated Press, local newspapers and TV stations, and publications with elite audiences such as Axios and Politico. These outlets do not coordinate their reports, but they take cues from each other and have similar coverage approaches. I'm not referring to opinion pieces in these outlets or the work of news organizations that have a clear ideological bent. You got that? None of the mainstream news has a clear ideological bent. That is what Perry Bacon just said. And I'm not making that up. I'm not misreading his words. I'm not taking them out of context. I'm not distorting their meaning. His sentences. I'm not referring to opinion pieces in these outlets or the work of news organizations that have a clear ideological bent. He is accepting E X C E P T I N G not accepting. He is accepting the mainstream news, the mainstream media outlets from his designation as having a clear ideological bent. You got that Axios Politico, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, the wire services, all straight down the middle, objective, hard news. That is what Perry Bacon is telling us right now. Reporters tend to view their role as a check on politicians, except they don't do that. Reporters see their relationships with politicians as relationships of access access that can be turned off if they write things the politicians don't like. That's the real relationship right now. Reporters believe that their goal is to support justice initiatives. They have said that they cop to that. They have argued that that is their real purpose. None of these reporters believe that they are actually there to serve as a check on power. They just say it. Because to deny it would be an embarrassment to their profession, or I should say an embarrassment to how their profession has been incorrectly branded for so long. This means presidents are always covered skeptically. But when one party dominates Washington, the political media often scrutinizes that party's president even more. Presidents Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama and Donald Trump got very negative coverage at times when their parties also controlled Congress. Except comparing the coverage of Barack Obama and Donald Trump is utterly insane. Also, the media's equally positive and negative to both sides approach has been challenged by the increasingly radical and anti-democratic Republican Party. So 
They try, they strive to treat both sides the same, but it's just too difficult now because the Republicans are radical and anti-democratic. When did it start? Who knows? Whenever the media started to be a little biased, I guess. But you know the media, no matter how crazy the other side gets, we're still going to find you a happy middle somewhere. We're going to be non-biased all the time, totally objective, right down the middle. Oh, we're going to strive to make Perry Bacon proud. Honest coverage of political news often seems anti-GOP. Got that? Just like Stephen Colbert always said, the facts have a liberal bias. The mainstream media covered Trump very harshly, particularly in the final months of his presidency as he worked to overturn election results. Some journalists, consciously or unconsciously, were poised to balance that negative Trump coverage with criticism of Biden, even if his actions weren't nearly as deserving of condemnation. So it's right in one case, wrong in the other case. It's both sidesism. They're straying from objectivity when they cover Biden negatively to make up for how negatively they covered Trump because it's both sidesism. In the post-Trump era, leaders at CNN, the New York Times, and other major outlets have emphasized that they don't want to be perceived as more aligned with the Democrats, which is such a strange thing for them to be concerned about since their objective down-the-middle reporting is so trustworthy. In the first few months of 2021, many in the media focused on narratives that seemed like they could turn into big anti-Biden stories but didn't pan out. Before most public schools were open, journalists focused on closures because Biden had pledged to get kids back in the classroom. Biden's first news conference as president in March 2021 featured numerous questions about a surge in migrants across the southern border and some about his 2024 plans, but not one on COVID-19, which the administration seemed to be handling well. And of course, that is just a historical nonsense. The Biden administration emphasized lockdown style policies, social distancing, masking, and then the enforcement and mandating of the experimental gene therapy that they took credit for but did not create. The general public did not see the coronavirus as a very deadly pandemic in March 2021. In August, the hunt found its mark, the Afghanistan withdrawal. And as high inflation became entrenched, the media had a perpetual issue to ding the president on. Relentless negative coverage is toxic for politicians. As University of Minnesota policy analyst Will Stansel has argued, U.S. news coverage often has a collective tenor, what he calls a main signal. This signal seeps from traditional news sources into social media with stories shared on platforms such as Facebook and Twitter. And oh, yes, what punishment they must have endured on social media, those systems that they have captured, controlled, censored, and manipulated, in addition to the fact that they have bought armies that promote their agenda. It's so strange that these writers never, ever account for what people might actually think about all these situations. Biden's arc shows what happens if this broad tenor turns against a politician there seems to be a generalized frustration with him as opposed to unhappiness over a single issue or two, even among people who don't 
closely follow traditional news outlets or are generally supportive of his views. Yes, everyone thinks he's terrible across the board because he's terrible across the board. And it's actually worse than that. People understand that he's legitimate and didn't actually win his election. So, yeah, people are kind of upset with Joe Biden. The political strategy Team Biden took focusing on showing the president competently managing the pandemic and the economy and reducing partisanship in Washington was particularly harmed by the media's coverage approach. Not the fact that Biden didn't get any of that done. It's the media's coverage approach. It is difficult for a president to demonstrate competence with a media perpetually looking for something negative. Well, it's also difficult for a president to demonstrate competence when everything he touches turns to shit and he can't speak or think in complete sentences. For one thing, when Biden got an issue under control, such as coronavirus vaccine distribution, many journalists simply moved on to a new problem without crediting him much for fixing the old one. Except Joe Biden made that old problem a problem in the first place and then returned to the distribution model that was already in place when he became the fake president. By making reduced political gridlock a metric of his success, Biden positioned himself to look bad when congressional Republicans and Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema blocked his proposals. So Biden's competence and bipartisanship couldn't garner any support from the other side and not even full support from his own side. But none of it is Biden's problem. It's the media's coverage. Now, Biden is polling worse than Trump was in July 2020, when thousands of people were dying each week of COVID, a situation much worse than the real and serious problem of high inflation in the Biden era. You can't credibly argue that Trump, with his constant inflammatory statements and incompetent management, was a better president than Biden. These poll numbers reflect something gone wrong. Actually, you can credibly argue that. You can argue it so credibly that you could make a convincing argument about Donald Trump's superiority at every single point. And that argument would be convincing to the overwhelming majority of Americans if we did not live in a state of censorship. It turns out the truth actually wins pretty easily when the truth is allowed to be told to people. And in my view, media coverage is a big factor in those warped polling results. Media commitment to equal coverage of both parties has resulted in a year and a half of coverage since Biden entered office that implies both parties are similarly bad, as if the surge of inflation and some of Biden's policy mistakes rival a Republican Party that is actively undermining democracy in numerous ways, such as continuing to voice baseless claims of voter fraud in the 2020 presidential election, passing measures making it harder to vote and gerrymandering so aggressively in states such as Wisconsin, that elections are effectively meaningless. This is a total lack of self-awareness. It is unbelievable. It's actually magnificent to witness because you used to only be able to understand ideas like this when reading fiction. Like if you read George Orwell's 1984, you might have an understanding of how a news article like this could exist in a fictional environment. But now Perry Bacon is giving it to you in reality. And we are just left to bask in its splendor. Yes, 
I am calling for the media to cover Biden more positively, not in the sense of declaring Biden a better man than Trump, though that is obviously true. Instead, political coverage should be grounded in highlighting the wide range of our problems and assessing whether politicians and parties are working toward credible solutions. Hey, Perry, have you seen Hunter Biden's laptop? The man you're calling a better man than Donald Trump destroyed his children through his own sexual degeneracy, political ambition and widespread corruption that he has allowed them to continue and in fact exploited them in the process of continuing. Joe Biden has, at every turn of his political career, been a blatant and malignant racist, in addition to selling his political office to the highest bidder, even when the highest bidder is an adversarial foreign nation. A better man than Trump. This is pathetic. Such a model would still produce a lot of stories about surging inflation, Afghanistan and other issues where Biden's policies haven't worked. But there would also be more stories about other issues important to Americans, even if they were going well under Biden, like the huge job growth during his tenure. Would you look at that? You close down society for false reasons. And when you reopen it, some people go back into the workforce and we're supposed to give Joe Biden credit for that. Ideally, on every issue, the media would compare the Republican and Democrat solutions. You can see how this model might help Biden, but the bigger benefit would be to readers. You got that? Then they would understand that the Republicans don't have solutions, as the Biden administration keeps saying. Perry Bacon is repeating the slogans of the administration and acting like that is an objective fact about the world, that Republicans don't have solutions to any of these problems. The truth is the Democrats have provably created each and every one of these problems. The solution is to get rid of Democrats and to get rid of the uniparty Republicans as well that continue to support all of the policy initiatives that create all these severe problems. It's too early to say whether Biden is a great or even good president, but most Americans aren't getting a fair look at that question. Instead of telling us whether Biden is effective, the media has focused on showing that it is not too biased toward Democrats. Better that journalists actually cover America's problems and whether Biden is solving them or at least has better policies than the Republicans. That's the kind of journalism we need. So Perry Bacon, a member of the global state propaganda media, a man who works for Jeff Bezos's Washington Post, Jeff Bezos's company, Amazon, is a World Economic Forum partner. That Perry Bacon, that propagandist is actually making the case for absolute propaganda. And they wonder why no one trusts them anymore. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!